Brains and plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the special edition of the Anarchist World This Week. In this special edition, we'll be uh, discussing the Tanaminawai and Morbohina saga, and I'd like to invite you to join us on a day which we feel should be National Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day, the 20th of January, uh, to meet us at the uh, monument to Tanaminawai and Morbohina, which was erected by the Melbourne City Council after a 10-year campaign by the Anarchist Media Institute and its supporters, to acknowledge the frontier wars. And the, uh, once again this year, we'll be holding the ceremony at midday on Sunday the 20th of January, 177 years after Tanaminawaya Mōbōhina were hung. At 8am on Tuesday the 20th of January, 1842, over 5,000 people, a quarter of Victoria's white population, gathered at the outskirts of Melbourne, crowding around the gallows erected on a small rise east of Swanson Street and north of Latrobe Street. The crowd, in a carnival mood, had come to see the public execution of the indigenous freedom fighters Tanaminaway and Morbohina, the first two people executed in Victoria. What's in a name? Tanaminaway, the son of Kegi Boyhina was born on Robbins Island in Tasmania, 1812. He was also known as Pive, Napoleon, Jack of Cape Grim and Tanaparaway. When he was born, European sealers had been hunting elephant seals and kangaroos on Robbins Island in northwest Tasmania for the last eight years. By the time he had turned 13, nearly all the elephant seals and kangaroos on the island had been wiped out. One year later, the Tasmanian Land Corp Company moved onto the North West Tribes land, establishing sheep stations at Circular Head and Cape Grim. On the 27th of November 1827, an Aboriginal came across sheep and several shepherds at Cape Grim. The meeting ended in disaster for the North West Tribes, when one Aboriginal man was shot dead and one shepherd was wounded in the scuffle that developed, when the shepherds attempted to entice the Aboriginal women into their huts. A few days later, the Aborigines drove a mob of sheep to their deaths over the cliffs of Victory Hill in revenge for the Aboriginal man's death. Six weeks later, the shepherds ambushed a group of Aborigines mutton burning, killing 30 men, women and children. They threw their bodies over the same cliffs, giving Cape Grim its name. The Northwest tribes continued to suffer at the hands of the sealers and shepherds. Aboriginal men were shot on sight, women were kidnapped and taken to the sealers' camps on Kangaroo Island, southern Victoria, where they were forced into sexual slavery. Within three years of white colonisation, only 60 
of the 500 members of the North West Tribe had survived the onslaught. In June 1830, George Augustus Robertson, the Chief Protector of Aborigines in Tasmania, reached North West Tasmania. He was attempting to round up the remnants of the free tribes of Tasmania and resettle them on an island off the north coast to prevent them from being exterminated. The only Aborigines in North West Tasmania he came into contact with were six abducted women and one abducted man, an 18-year-old youth who had been named Jack of Cape Grimm. He forced the sealers to give up the North West Tribe Aboriginals by threatening to prosecute them for shooting their husbands. Robinson persuaded the Aborigines to come with him, promising they would be able to return to their tribal lands. Tanaminaway escaped from Robertson a few months after his initial capture because he realised that he had no intention of returning him to Robins Island. He was recaptured by Robertson soon after and became part of the group that accompanied Robertson in the search for the Big River people between October 1830 to January 1831. Tanaminaway developed a long and complex relationship with Robertson and in October 1835 he accompanied him to Flinders Island. Robertson held Tanaminaway in high regard and spoke of him as an exceedingly willing and industrious young man who was stout and well made, of good temper and performed his work equal to any white man. Mawboy Hina, Robert Smallboy, Jemmy, Timmy, Tinny, Jimmy, Robert of Ben Lomond and Bob were some of the European names Mawboy Hina was known as. Mawboy Hina came from one of the inland tribes that had lived on the Ben Lomond highlands. He came into contact with Robertson as a relatively young man in early 1830 accompanying him, his party of white assistants and the five survivors of the Bruni Island people, Waraday, his two sons Peter and David Bruni and two young girls Dre and Pagarel, on the difficult journey along the West Cope to help persuade the West Coast guerrilla bands to lay down their arms and move to Flinders Island. Morwahina was also part of Governor Arthur's infamous Black Line campaign that was conducted later that year to drive Tasmanian Aborigines away from the settled areas. Morwahina joined the dynamic leader of the Stony Creek tribe, Kanahulahina Umara, and Tanaminaway in October 1831 to find the Big River tribe and force them to join Robertson's group. In 1832, Morwahina accompanied Robertson on his second foray down the west coast. In 1835, Robertson boasted the entire Tasmanian Aboriginal population had been removed to Flinders Island. He received a reward of £1,000 for his services to the government. The 33-year war between the European colonisers and the Tasmanian Aborigines was finally over. Over 10,000 Aborigines had lived in Tasmania when Europeans first colonised Tasmania in 1803. By 1835, less than 350 had survived the Holocaust. Three quarters of those who were transferred to Flinders Island died within two years. Only 89 Tasmanian Aborigines were left when Robertson decided to offer his services to the New South Wales government. The Tasmanian government, keen to see the back of the last of the Tasmanians, offered to bankroll his generous offer as long as he was allowed to take all the Tasmanian Aborigines that had survived the European Holocaust 
to the Australian mainland. Move them out! George Augustus Robertson had big plans for himself and his Aborigines. He never had any intention to return the survivors of the 33-year Holocaust back to their tribal lands. Robertson wanted to use his domesticated Aborigines to civilise the mainland blacks. Even before John Batman set up his illegal settlement at Port Phillip Bay, the governor of Van Dins Land, Sir George Arthur, wrote on the 27th of December 1835 to colonial office in England, informing them that George Robertson was willing to take his Aborigines from Flinders Island to the newly established settlement at Portland Bay on the Australian mainland to open a friendly communication with the natives there. The Tasmanian authorities, keen to deport the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, even offered to pay for their maintenance in New Holland. The New South Wales authorities strongly opposed the deportation of the, of the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Australian mainland, although the British Colonial Office was in favour of the move. Governor Arthur highlighted that the deportation of the last surviving Tasmanian Aborigines to Flinders Island had greatly increased the value of Crown land in Tasmania. And he, he believed Robertson could, using the same tactics he used in Tasmania, do the same for the value of Crown land on the mainland. A British House of Commons Select Committee in 1837 recommended that a protective Aborigines be appointed at Port Phillip because of the numerous reports of atrocities that were being committed by the new settlers against the Aboriginal population. Governor After and the new Tasmanian Governor Franklin lobbied to have Robinson take up the post of Chief Protector at Port Phillip. Governor Franklin highlighted in August 1834 that life would be safer for the Port Phillip settlers, they allowed Robinson to bring across the Tasmanian Aboriginal survivors from Flinders Island to Port Phillip because of the mixing of domesticated blacks with the less civilised tribes at Port Phillip would make them less dangerous. He repeated Governor Arthur's offer to pay for their upkeep at Port Phillip. A New South Wales Legislative Council committee headed by the Anglican Archbishop of Australia claimed in 1838 it would be a serious mistake to let the Tasmanian Aborigines on the mainland because of the risk of violence, rapine and murder. The committee was concerned the lessons the Tasmanian Aborigines had learnt in their 33-year war against the white colonisers would encourage the local Aborigines to do the same fierce and hostile deportment towards the settlers. The Legislative Council Committee suggests that if the Tasmanian Aborigines were civilised, they should be set free, not to be deported to the mainland. On the 12th of December 1838, Robertson was appointed Chief Protector of Aborigines at Port Phillip. He was allowed to bring one family of Tasmanian Aborigines with him to act as his personal attendants. The move. Sir George Gibbs, the Governor of New South Wales, made it clear to the colonial office in England that he did not support Robinson's plan to bring across the Tasmanian Aborigines to Port Phillip. He only allowed Robinson to bring one family with him to act as his personal attendants. Robinson, full of his own self-importance, brought 16 of the surviving 89 Tasmanian Aborigines with him to Port Phillip. Governor Gipps informed Robinson that the New South Wales government would only provide rations for a family of four. Robinson and the 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island arrived at Port Phillip in January 1839. He intended to use the Tasmanian Aborigines as mediators and educators. Even a man as hardened as Robertson was shocked by the disease 
destitution and wretchedness displayed by the Port Phillip Aborigines who were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Robertson wanted Victorian Aborigines to be able to continue to live on government-owned remnants of land in the districts they had traditionally lived on. The Chief Protector introduced the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Yarra tribes almost as soon as he arrived. He noted in his diary, their reception was of the utmost friendly character. James Dredge, William Thomas, Edward Parker and Charles Sievright came to Australia from England to take up their positions as assistant protectors. The assistant protectors set up their tents on an old Aboriginal camping ground on the south of the Yarra. Robertson moved into an abandoned police hut and the Tasmanian Aborigines had to build grass shelters for themselves. The party organised a great feast in February 1839 to which all the Port Phillip Aborigines and Melbourne townsfolk were invited. Beef, mutton and bread were supplied to everyone. The Aborigines initially refused to eat the food prepared for them because they were concerned they would be poisoned as poison was liberally being used by the squatters to solve their Aboriginal problem. Games and competitions were held and fireworks were set off to show the Port Phillip Aborigines that the protectors had come with good intentions. The Aborigines mistakenly assumed that they would be supplied with free rations and goods to compensate them for the loss of their lands. Governor Gibbs, concerned about the cost involved, complained to the Colonial Office. He severely limited the rations that could be given to Aborigines after October 1839. Assistant protectors deplored. George Augustus Robertson had four assistant protectors to help him ameliorate the lot of local tribes in the face of introduced disease, the ravages of alcohol and tribal welfare, interracial massacres and poisoning. The chief protector of Aborigines was expected to do his job despite overt hostility from white settlers and the press and very little financial support from the Sydney Treasury. When Robertson arrived with 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island, no government supplies were allocated for the Aborigines. Some months after their arrival, Superintendent Latrobe provided rations for four of them. The Tasmanian Aborigines were expected to look after themselves. Robertson's four assistants had been appointed by the British Colonial Office. None had been to Australia before. Charles Dredd, Edward Parker and William Thomas were Methodist school teachers. The fourth assistant, Charles Seabright, was a former military officer who had been forced to sell his military office to pay off his gambling debts. On the 26th of March 1839, after the new assistant protectors had familiarised themselves with their positions, they were allocated areas of responsibility by Robinson. Dredge was sent to northeast Victoria, Park to the northwest Victoria, Seawright to the western districts, and Thomas was responsible for Melbourne and Western Port. Seawright was shocked to find that his first journey to the western districts, two stations he visited, had Aboriginal skulls placed over the doors as a warning to any Aborigines that came to the station. Robertson was more interested in creating an empire for himself than taking an interest in the plight of the Aborigines he was employed to protect. Faced with hundreds of Aborigines camped around Melbourne, many of them dying from typhus fever, dysentery, syphilis, pneumonia, the cold and famine, Robertson lost interest in the plight of the 16 Aborigines he brought across with him from Flinders Island. Some were loaned out to work for Robertson's sons, others were expected to look after themselves. On the 2nd of October 1840, the, the New South Wales Governor released Robertson from any responsibility for the Tasmanian Aborigines he had brought to Tasmania brought to Port Phillip. The Mile Creek Massacre. 
In June 1838 at Mile Creek, north of Sydney, 28 Aborigines, mainly women and children, were tied up and hacked to pieces with swords. The dismembered bodies were partially burned. Seven assigned convicts were brought to trial for the massacre. They were acquitted by a jury after 15 minutes' discussion. The Anti-Slavery Society in England and the Aborigines Protection Society in London were disgusted by the massacre, the trial and the comments made by jurors involved in the trial. I look on the blacks as a set of monkeys and the earlier they are exterminated from the face of the earth, the better. That was what jury members said. An active Aborigines Protection Society in London and a sympathetic colonial administration in England forced New South Wales Governor Gibbs to hold a retrial. After the seventh trial, the assigned convicts working as shepherds were found guilty. They were hung soon after the second trial on the 18th of December 1838. Interestingly, their masters, the squatters who ordered the massacres, were never questioned, charged or brought to trial for ordering the massacre. The seven assigned convicts were executed to keep the colonial office off the New South Wales government's back. In May 1839, Gibbs, the New South Wales governor, who was also responsible for the newly established Port Phillip settlement, declared in the Government Gazette he wanted to bring the settlers and the Aborigines to equal and indiscriminate justice. The hanging of the seven assigned convicts in Sydney in late 1838 and Governor Gibbs' announcement five months later caused consternation among the Port Phillip squatters. The Port Phillip press funded against pseudo-philanthropists who didn't know what they were talking about. The open warfare that had been occurring between Aborigines and squatters in the Port Phillip region and the rest of Victoria became a secret covert war of destruction almost overnight. Nobody talked about what was happening. Bodies of Aborigines with gunshot wounds were dismembered and burnt. Robinson's assistant protectors were shunned. William Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, reported that the squatters and their shepherds were incensed about the Sydney hangings. Thomas reported that poisoning had become the favourite weapon of the colonisers and the blacks stopped accepting flour, milk and bread from the squatters because of their fear of poisoning. The local Aborigines found themselves in an impossible situation, driven by their lands at the point of a gun, concerned about the very real possibility the provisions that were being offered to them by squatters and assisted protectors alike could be poisoned and unable to hunt and gather food on their traditional lands, many died of starvation. Those like Tullamarine and Jinjin who stole potatoes grown in South Yarra or killed sheep to survive were treated as criminals. The lucky ones like Tullamarine and Jinjin were arrested the unlucky ones were legally hunted down and slaughtered. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. The Van Diemen's Land's Aborigines were of little use to the Chief Protector Robinson. Morbohina and Walter Arthur were sent to assist white explorers trek to South Australia. Wadari and a few of the older men were sent to work on Robinson's son's properties. He found the women hard to handle. They absconded on a number of occasions and had to be recaptured by Robinson. In August 1840, Superintendent Latrobe, concerned about Robertson's capacities to deal with the local Aborigines, asked the New South Wales Governor to relieve him of responsibility for the Van Diemen Land's natives. He was officially relieved of any responsibility for their care on the 2nd of October 1840. Left to their own devices, they tended to gravitate to the Western Port region where Thomas, the Assistant Protector for the Melbourne region, had been sent to set up a blacks camp to distribute rations to encourage the hundreds of blacks that were camped around the settlement in Melbourne to move away from Melbourne. It is known 
that Isaac, one of the 16 Van Diemen's Land blacks, was in early 1841 going around the Westerpool region telling the settlers to arm themselves as five black fellows were coming down to cause mischief. On the pretense they were going to join Thomas's camp, Tanaminaway, Morbohina, Putirana, Traganini and Planobina, five of the original party of 16, vanished into the Western Port Bush by August 1841. Planobina was Tanaminaway's wife. Morbohina was involved in a relationship with Traganini. William Thomas, the assistant protector's oldest son, wrote in his private journal, he, Jack of Cape Grimm, talked about what they had suffered at the hands of the white man, how many of their tribe had been slain, how they had been hunted down in Tasmania. Now was the time for revenge. They were not cooped up in an island, Flinders. They had unfinished business. They had unlimited bush to roam over at their will. This little band of two men and three women were familiar with the white man's ways. They knew how to use firearms. They knew how to survive in the bush. It was six years since Melbourne was formed. Over 8,000 whites lived in the new town. The local Aborigines had to a large degree been subdued and posed little threat to the settlers in Melbourne. In October 1841, fear and trepidation swept through the town as the exploits of the Tasmanian blacks became known. Many of the settlers had come to Melbourne from Tasmania. They were aghast, their old foes, the Tasmanian Aborigines, who were only defeated after a 33-year brutal and bitter struggle when Aborigines were legally shot on sight, were amounting a determined resistance to white settlement on the outskirts of Melbourne in Dandenong and Western Port region. From little things, big things grow. In 1840, the Dandenongs in the Western Port region were dense bush. The stations set up by the squatters were established in clearings they had hacked from the scrub. The Tasmanian Aborigines began their campaign in the Dandenong region. They robbed Mr Horsfall, a squatter living in the Dandenongs, of his fowling piece. Walking up to 30 miles a day to evade capture, they robbed a number of other stations. They mainly stole firearms, sugar, flour and tea. The firearms they collected were much more than they could use themselves, considering they were trying to move quickly through the bush to evade capture. It is highly likely they were collecting firearms to distribute to the local Aborigines. It is recorded their first strike against the squatters was conducted with the help of local Aborigines. The Tasmanian Aborigines raided the hut of Mr Watson, the overseer of a small open-cut cliff-face mine at Cape Patterson that had been established to provide coal for Melbourne. Following the normal practice, they spared the women in the hut, ordering them into the bush, stole guns and ammunition, and then set fire to the hut, ensuring that it couldn't be used by the settlers in the future. On one of the few occasions when they didn't get away without exchanging shots, the hut's overseer and his son-in-law, Walter Eman, began shooting at the party. The Aborigines fired back, wounding Walter in the leg. Walter Eman and Mr Watson made their way to a squatter station for assistance. A party of seven whalers who were walking along the beach from their camp at Ladies Bay came across the deserted mining settlement soon after the shots were exchanged. Seeing some people a few hundred metres away in the bush, who they thought were the miners, two of the whalers, William Cook and Yankee, went to the bush to investigate. Within five minutes of them leaving, two shots rang out. All-out warfare. The Tasmanian Aborigines set up an ambush for Mr Watson and his son-in-law, William Inan. The two whalers, William Cook and Yankee, stumbled into the ambush prepared for Watson and Eman. Cook dropped dead as a result of a gunshot wound through the ear. Yankee shot in the side was killed by a number of blows to the head. Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who was concerned about the missing men, organised the rest of the party to look for them. They walked to the path of Watson and Eman, 
who concerned about the approaching men shot over their heads. One of the whalers who continued to search for the men stumbled across their bodies on the beach. The whalers and miners saw the party of Aborigines who killed the whalers on a nearby hill. They chased them, but soon lost sight of them. They returned burying the bodies near the mouth of the Powlett River. Superintendent of Trobe had been notified two days earlier, the 4th of October 1841, that a party of Aborigines had robbed Mozzie Station at Western Port. Latrobe decided that, that same night to send troops to deal with the situation. Mr Powlett, the Commissioner of Clown Lands, who came to Western Port to sell off the Aborigines' land to the squatters, and two police joined Lieutenant Samuel Rawson of the 28th Regiment, who had been sent to Western Port in early October to protect the squatters from Aboriginal attack. On the 10th of October, 1841, four days after the killing of Yankee and Cook, Rawson and Powlett were notified about their deaths. They left in an open rowboat, hoping to quickly find the Tasmanian Aborigines. By this time, 14 armed men were involved in the hunt for the Aborigines. After a fruitless day of searching, they decided to return to Melbourne to find Aboriginal trackers to help them in their hunt. On their way back, they called in to see Mr Westerway and his labourers, who told them they had been shot at during the night. The Tasmanians had stolen guns and ammunition and £22 in banknotes. Tundaminaway, hoping to drive Westerway's workers from Westernport, burnt the notes, realising the timber cutters would leave their employer if he could not pay them. It took Rawson and Powlett five days by boat to get back to Melbourne. They called in all the squatter camps that they came across, raising the alarm about the Tasmanian Aborigines. On the 29th of October 1841, almost a month after the first raids had started, the Port Phillip Herald carried the first report about the raids across Dandenong and Westerport that were being conducted by the heavily armed Aborigines. Rawson and Powlett arrived in Dandenong on the 29th of October to meet up with a party of six policemen, six black trackers, Mr Thomas, the Aboriginal protector for the Melbourne area, a cart, a tent and a few squatters. The Tasmanian Aborigines had travelled from Cape Patterson back to Dandenong on the same day the search party arrived to steal more guns, ammunition and supplies from the squatters. On the 30th of October, the Aborigines laid down the gauntlet to the pursuing party, leaving messages at a station they would not be taken alive and would fight to the last man and woman. By now, the police party had swelled to 18 men on horseback and six on foot. Fun and games. Palanese party, guided by the black trackers, soon came across the Tasmanian Aborigines' footprints. The Aborigines had robbed a station on their way to Western Port, stealing two guns, pistols and eight canisters of powder under the nose of the posse. The following day, the party hunting the Tasmanian had swirled to 24. 18 were mounted on horseback. The Aboriginal black trackers had been given muskets and pistols when they became increasingly nervous about following fresh tracks into the bush. Hearing two gunshots and seeing people less than 200 yards away, the party rode across what first appeared to be a flat, open piece of land. Within a few minutes, the horses were floundering in the swamp. They were surprised that Tasmanian Aborigines had not taken advantage of the predicament by firing a few shots into the sinking crowd of horsemen. Mr Hobson, one of the pursuers, showed some initiative when he mounted a tree and took a pot shot at somebody he saw hiding in the scrub surrounding the area. The posse demanded that the intruders surrender or be shot. Imagine their surprise when one of the local squatters, Mr Anderson, and four of his servants, who had been shooting swans, came out of the scrub with their hands held above their heads. Anderson and his party joined the posse, as Anderson was one of the group who had been found the murdered whalers a few weeks, uh, four weeks previously. Somehow, 
This disorganised group stumbled across the Tasmanians. They easily outran their mounted pursuers by fleeing across a swamp. The Aboriginal black trackers, concerned about their safety, refused to continue the hunt. Powell and Rawson soon realised they could not continue without the help of black trackers. They decided to disband the group. Powell returned to Melbourne on the 2nd of November 1841. Rawson decided to stay at his station for a few more days. Becoming increasingly concerned about the Tasmanians' continued presence in the area, he returned to Melbourne on the 8th of November. On the following day, the Port, Fi- Port Phillip Herald reported the Mary Chase, Powlett, Rawson and their posse were led on by the five Tasmanian Aborigines. Soldiers, police, squatters and black trackers. Where are Ah, ah, here we go. The Aboriginal protector Thomas, accompanied by three black trackers, continued to search for the Tasmanians. He located their camp near Western Port. Powell and Rawson organised a new hunting party. They met at Dandenong three days later. Receiving information from Thomas that he had located the Tasmanians' camp, they set out for Western Port, adding new people to their posse, as they called in at stations for help. The inability of the military and the police to locate and arrest Tasmanians had caused consternation in the district. Many of the stations on the Mornington Peninsula were deserted. Their owners retreated to the relative safety of Melbourne. On the 16th of November, Corporal Jennings and eight soldiers joined the new posse. The following day, nine mounted police, nine soldiers, four Aboriginal black trackers and six settlers, all armed to the teeth, made their way to the camp where the Aboriginal protector Thomas and four more black trackers were waiting. End game. The Tasmanians arrived at Anderson Station on the 17th of November. They waited till the men had left and then entered the house. Finding two women and a child in the house, Tanaminaway led them out and stood guard over them while Mobohina ransacked the house. The Tasmanians took all the weapons they could find and all the supplies they needed. In all the raids they carried out, they never harmed any women or children. The men that were shot in the raids they carried out were usually shot in the heat of battle. They burned down the houses they raided to drive the squatters back to Melbourne. Although they hoped the local Aborigines would be inspired by their example, not one joined their little group. If it wasn't for the assistance of the Aboriginal black trackers who became involved in the chase because they were promised they would receive guns and provisions for their help, it is highly unlikely the Tasmanians, survivors of a bitter and brutal 33-year war against the British in Tasmania, would ever have been captured. Ironically, the black trackers received a few trinkets and blankets for their troubles, although they had been allowed to carry guns during the chase. The following day, the pursuit party, which had now grown to 26 men on horseback, arrived at Anderson Station. They were confident that with the help of the black trackers, they would soon overtake the two men and three women travelling on foot, who had caught consternation and panic among the squatters in the Danny Nong's western port in the morning to the peninsula. The following day, they were camped less than a mile from where the Tasmanians had set up their camp. That evening, William Thomas, the assistant protector, volunteered to negotiate with the Tasmanians. The rest of the party, believing the end of the chase was near, refused Thomas's position to negotiate. Soldiers, police, squatters and black trackers woke up at about 4am on Saturday the 20th of November. They moved out in single file, armed to the teeth, hoping to win the Tasmanians' rebellion by daybreak. They walked about a mile through a lagoon and across sand hills until the Aboriginal trackers pointed out the smoke coming from the Tasmanian's fire that was less than 30 metres away. The party was standing on top of a sand hill that overlooked the camp that had been set up 
in the gully below. They formed a semicircle. The men less than two metres away from each other had advanced to within two metres of the camp when all hell broke loose. The Tasmanians' dogs rushed at the posse. The Tasmanians tried to slip into the scrub in a hail of bullets, amid a hail of bullets. Samuel Rawson, believing that all the Tasmanians were dead, entered the camp. He found two of the women hiding under blankets. After putting handcuffs on them, he put a gun to their heads and forced them to call out to those in the scrub to surrender. A woman emerged from the scrub covered in blood. She had sustained a superficial wound to her head. The only casualty from the 30 to 40 shots that were fired at the heads of the sleeping Aborigines. One of the men who tried to escape from the scrub was captured, while the other man who had made his escape pleaded to return when the women who had guns trained on their heads, pleaded for him to return. The five freedom fighters were handcuffed and had chains put on their legs. While they quietly awaited their fate, the ravenous soldiers, black trackers, police and squatters made cakes from the 60 pounds of flour and sugar that Tasmanians had with them. The prisoners were marched through the bush and arrived in Melbourne six days later. They were taken before the police magistrate, Major St John, who took evidence from 12 witnesses. He committed Tanaminoa Morbohina for the murder of William Cook and Yankee and the three women, Puterina, Truganani and Planabina, as associates before the end of the fact. Judge Wills. The five resistant fighters were put on trial for the murders of the whalers on the 20th of December 1841 before Judge John Walpole Wills. In 1841, five years after the establishment of Melbourne, the first Supreme Court was housed in a temporary structure at the corner of King and Burke Street. Judge Willis arrived at Port Phillip on the 9th of March 1841. Before Willis's arrival, serious offenders who were committed to for trial had to be sent with military and police escorts back to Sydney for trial. The expense involved in the this undertaking gave Governor Sir George Gipps the excuse he needed to send Judge Willis, the most quarrelsome and difficult member of the New South Wales Supreme Court, to preside over the newly established Supreme Court at Port Phillip. To say Willis had a colourful history is an understatement. Judge Willis left many bitter memories in his wake. His first appointment to the court in Upper Canada in 1827 ended when facing a revolt by the locals. He was removed by the British Colonial Office. Using his extensive contacts in England, he was able to obtain and hold onto an appointment on the British Guiana Court from 1831, despite being removed from the court in Upper Canada. His attempts to return to the British Guiana Court after 12 months sick leave in England were bitterly opposed by the shell-shocked citizens of that community. Instead, he was sent to sit on the Supreme Court in Sydney in 1837. When he arrived, true to form, he took an immediate dislike to the New South Wales Chief Justice, Sir James Dowling. Judge Willis had a habit of sitting in the court when Dowling delivered his judgments, loudly exclaiming, Why does he not get his facts right? And did you hear the like? When the decision was made to open up a Supreme Court at Port Phillip, Governor Gibbs took the opportunity to transfer the judge, who at some people fought cracked, to Melbourne. Governor Gibbs was wrong in believing that sending Judge Willis to Melbourne would solve his problems. Arriving in Melbourne, Willis continued his sparring with the New South Wales Supreme Court, making decisions that challenged the legitimacy of British rule in Australia. In September 1841, three months before the trial of the five Tasmanian freedom fighters, a local Aborigine called Bonjon appeared before Judges, Judge Justice Willis on a charge of murdering another Aborigine. In 1840, the squatters who had established the settlement of Philip were concerned about the large number of Aborigines who were camping on the Yarra Banks. The Aborigines had come to the settlement to receive the rations they had been promised. In October 1840, in a show of force, 200 Aborigines were arrested. 
after a dispute in the camp led to the death of an Aborigine. By the time Bon John appeared before Judge Willis, the other 199 had escaped. Bon John's defence counsel made the point that Port Phillip, having become appended to the British Crown by occupancy and no treaty had been entered into by the natives, they were not subject nor had any or had they submitted themselves to the British Crown. Judge Willis agreed with the Defence Council, citing examples of New Zealand, Ireland and the East Indies, making the point that Aborigines cannot be considered foreigners in their own lands. He ruled that Aboriginal law had legal force in Australia in matters concerning the relationship between Aborigines. Judge Willis ruled that he did not have the authority to try Bon John for a crime he had committed against another Aborigines and set him free. Judge Willis' decision was overruled by the New South Wales Supreme Court in May 1842. The colonial government in London stepped in when the Judge Willis stated, My opinion, although overruled, still stays the same. The law that Judge Willis administered in Port Phillip was based largely on the laws of England. His interpretation of those laws in the Bonjon case was overturned because his decision called into doubt the legality of the British colonisation of Australia. Legal Manoeuvrings, Part 1 Judge Willis, magnanimity towards Aborigines did not extend to conflicts between the colonisers and Aborigines. George Bolden squatted an area near the Hopkins River in the Western District. When an Aboriginal man, woman and child attempted to cross his property to reach a camp set up by Aboriginal protector Charles Sealwright for Aborigines in the Western District, he attacked them on horseback with whips. Tatakia, the Aboriginal man acting in self-defence, tried to pull Bolden off his horse. Bolden shot him in the stomach and beat the Aboriginal woman to death. The child escaped to Seavright's Aboriginal camp. Charles Seavright, sickened by what had happened, reported the matter to Superintendent Latrobe. Bolden was put on trial but was acquitted on the decision direction of Judge Willis. The jury, unhappy with Judge Willis' decision, told Bolden he did not leave the court without a stain on his character. In his reasoning for the acquittal, Judge Willis stated there'd been no reservation in the grant, lease or licence from government in favour of the Aborigines. The possessor had also a right to turn off by, any, by all lawful means any person, whether white or black, who should trespass on his run. Superintendent Latrobe, shocked at Will's judgment, asked Governor Gipps whether the legal principle established by the case was sound and incontrovertible. He believed there was a manifest inhumanity in attempting to exclude all Aborigines from the land. The tribe was concerned that Will's judgment meant that the squatters could recommence massacring the Aboriginal population. It might induce a return to the lamentable scenes of 1839 and the earlier part of 1840. The tribe was alluding to the numerous massacres that occurred during this period as the squatters fanned across Victoria. Well, it's clearly stated that unlike the Bon John case, the court had jurisdiction in matters of aggression between blacks and white. On the 20th of December, 1845, 1841, the five Van Diemen's land Aborigines appeared before Judge Willis, a man described by Governor Gibbs in 1843 as an apologist for the cruelest practices by some of the least respectable of the settlers on the Aborigines. Legal Manoeuvring Part 2 if the defendants were unable to understand English or had been ignorant of Christian values, there is a slight possibility there would have been spared prosecution. Unfortunately, Robertson's civilising influence and his adamant assertion that they had knowledge about the principles of religion and they knew right from wrong sealed their faith. Judge Willis always believed they were intelligent enough to be understand court proceedings and didn't believe the humanity of the law that extended to an idiot or a lunatic extended to the five Aborigines standing trial in his court. 
1841, Aborigines were not equal in the eyes of the law. They could not testify or lay charges in the courts. The only way they could achieve even a modicum of justice was for a white witness to testify on their behalf. Considering the crimes against humanity that were being perpetrated against Aborigines were conducted in undeclared frontier war, where those squatters doing the killing were the only white witnesses, the ruling against Aboriginal evidence ensured that crimes committed against Aborigines never made it to the colonial courts. Five Aborigines were executed in Melbourne for crimes against whites between 1842 and 1848. Only one white man was convicted in court for killing Aborigines during this period and he only received two months incarceration for his crime. Considering the legal gun was loaded against the Aboriginal defendants because they couldn't call Aboriginal witnesses to speak in their own defence or even allow to tender an alibi, Redmond Barry, the Defence Counsel for Aboriginals for the Port Phillip region, mounted a spiritual Spirit of Defence on their behalf. Just in case the name Redmond Barry seems familiar, the young Irish Aboriginal Defence Council is the same Redmond Barry who was a judge presided over the trials of a number of the Eureka miners charged with high treason in 1855 and sentenced Ned Kelly to hang almost 30 years later in 1880. But that's another story. As a public defender, Redmond Barry canvassed a number of interesting arguments in Judge Willis' court, even arguing against the legal validity of the court proceedings. Redmond Barry began by arguing the defendants were not naturalised subjects of the Queen and half of the jury should be composed of people not subject to the Queen. Judge Willis scoffed at this novel idea and refused to grant Barry's request. The Crown Prosecutor faced with the dilemma that one of his main witnesses, Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who witnessed the whalers' murders had not turned up to the trial, wanted to drop the charges of murder against the defendants as the only evidence the prosecution had was the defendants' own confessions. Judge Willis, in no mood to accept this argument, ruled the murder charge would stand because he accepted Truganini's pre-trial confession that Tanaminawe and Morbohina were responsible for the murders of the whalers. As the trial progressed, Barry highlighted the evidence was largely circumstantial and the confession should not be accepted because they were from people in a state of terror. He attempted to win the jury's sympathy by highlighting what every settler in the colony knew but refused to acknowledge. We must remember the course of the destruction, at first incentives and private, then openly declared, which eventually swept a numerous nation off the face of their native country and transported them remnant to a foreign to them distant shore. Barry asked the jury how a people treated in this manner could be asked to quietly forget what had happened to them, and be expected not to exact revenge for their dispossession and misery. He was attempting to get the jury to put themselves in the place of the defendants, hoping the very people who had been responsible for their dispossession and murder would be able to identify and sympathise with the Aborigines. As there were no white witnesses to the murder, the prosecutor's case swung on the confessions of Morbohina and Traganini. Tanaminiwe and Pitarina and Planabina made no confessions when captured and while they were held in custody. Evidence which directly implicated Truganini in the murder of the whalers was in court ignored by the court. The defendant's inability to give evidence or be cross-examined meant that the evidence given by Powlett, Watson and Robert Robbins, one of the whaling party, about Tanaminoa and Morbohina's admissions had a greater influence on the jury than it should have. George Robertson was called on to give character references for the defendants he had known for 13 years. He praised Tanaminoa and told the court his conduct had always been exemplary. He told the jury that Mulbohina, as long horns and back a servant, had accompanied them to an overland, on an overland journey from Melbourne to Adelaide 
and back and it saved Longhorn's life when they were attacked by Aborigines along the Murray. Robinson told the jury that Traganini had saved his life in Tasmania and made the important observation, I have never found these persons wanting in humanity. Robinson sealed the defendant's fate when he told the court the accused understood the principles of religion and knew right from wrong. The verdict. In his closing address, Barry highlighted the circumstantial nature of the evidence and the inappropriate manner by which the confessions were obtained. He pointed out that not one witness could identify any of the accused. Barry Barry urged urged the jury to acquit the defendants of the crimes they were charged with. Late Monday night on the 20th of December, 1841, the jury came to their decision in just 30 minutes. They found Tanaminawe Morbohina guilty of murder and acquitted Tranaganini, Putirana and Planovina of all charges. The jury, moved by Barry's arguments, recommended mercy for the men on account of general good character and the peculiar circumstances under which they were placed. The next morning, the five were returned to the court for the sentencing. Judge Willis discharged the three women into Robinson's care and then addressed the accused. By the confessions of Bob Morbohina and the statements of Truganini, there can be no doubt of your guilt. The punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance, but of terror. You will be taken to the place of execution and be hanged by the neck until dead. The newspapers applauded Judge Willis's sentence. The Port Phillip Herald funded against the system of Aboriginal protectors. It seems the broadside that is regularly launched against bleeding heart liberals and the Black Arm Band Brigade today was exactly the same type of garbage that was peddled in the media in 1841. Referring to the hanging of seven shepherds for the Mile Creek massacres in New South Wales a few years earlier, the Port Phillip Herald pointed out, whilst the laws protect the blacks, the white man's blood must remain un. Carnival time On the eve of the execution Morbohina refused his supper Tanamunaway on the other hand ate heartily and smoked his pipe with the utmost tranquillity The next morning, Tuesday the 20th of January 1842, people began arriving at the gallows trying to find the best spot to view the hangings at 8am, the prisoners emerged from the Eastern Watch House, dressed entirely in white, including white calico caps. They were herded into a cart that, thankfully, much of the spectators' annoyance had cloth stretched around it to give the condemned men some privacy. Mounted and border police led the cart through the city to the Gallows Hill. The Port Phillip Herald reported an immense crowd between 4,000 and 5,000 people the greater part of whom were women and children, from the laughing and merry faces that which were assembled, the scene resembled more the appearance of the race course than a scene of death. The walls and body of the new goal were literally packed with spectators, awaiting the awful scene as if it were a bull bait or a prize ring. A quarter of Victoria's white population had come to see the hanging. The detachment of infantry who paraded in their Sunday best tried to keep some order in the crowd. Aborigines had climbed to the surrounding trees to witness the execution. The cart eventually drew up at the gallows. The Port Phillip Gazette reported the condemned men's arrival was met in explosions of uproarious merriment. The arrival was followed by a 20-minute farce of prayer reading, which was interrupted with calls to cut it short. By this time, Morbohim had become extremely agitated. His moans, reported the Gazette, were terrible to hear. Bob Morbohim's feelings broke out in the most 
heart-rendering groans, the terrified and pitiless looks he threw around him, pressing against everyone that spoke to him as if to catch some chance of salvation was terrible to witness. He trembled violently. James Dredge, one of the assistant Aboriginal protectors, wrote in his diary, The executioner tied their hands before they went up the ladder, and chains hung from their ankles, making it nearly impossible for them. The poor wretches in getting up the ladder, deprived the use of their hands, were obliged to cling to the bars with their knees and chins and be partly dragged and be partly pushed up to slaughter. Tanaminawe calmly ascended the flimsy ladder. Morbohina was dragged up the ladder after Tanaminawe had reached the scaffold. The crowd seeing Morbohina shaking violently on the scaffold went quiet. The executioner fixed the nooses, pulled down their nightcaps over their heads and hurried down the ladder. As the preacher uttered the key words, in the midst of life, we are in death. The executioner's assistant pulled the noose. The drop only descended halfway, and a terrible scene followed. Thus the two poor wretches got jumbled and twisted and writhed convulsively in a manner that horrified even the most hardened. The executioner and his assistant had not seen, did not seem to know what to do. A bystander rushed forward and knocked away the obstruction. Tanaminawe died instantly. Morbohina's noose had become displaced and he kept struggling for a number of minutes before he was strangled to death. The carnival move that had dominated the scene before the execution evaporated. The crowd angrily turned on the executioner who grinned horribly a ghastly smile. The bodies were left on the scaffold for the regulation hour. They were cut down from their nooses, placed in coffins and taken to the Aboriginal section of the cemetery, now Melbourne's thriving Victoria markets. On the way to their cemetery, their clothes were removed from the bodies and executioners perk. The chief Aboriginal protector, Robertson, was waiting for their coffins at the cemetery beside their open graves. John Davies, the executioner, soon found that the New South Wales government had little interest in honouring the Port Phillip authorities' promise to him. He had been promised £10 and a ticket of leave, which enabled a convict to obtain employment locally for his services. After initial refusal, he was only given £5 for his work. He was not granted a ticket of leave till the 1st of December 1843, almost 40 years after the execution. What happened to the other Tasmanians? Robson was upset that Judge Willis had made him personally responsible for the three women who acquitted the charges out against him. The trove finally agreed to pay for the remaining Tasmanian Aborigines to be returned to Flinders Island. Truganini, Planobin and Pitarana, David Bruni, Walter Arthur and Jack Allen, a Tasmanian Aborigine who had been brought across from Tasmania by Batman in 1835, were returned to Flinders Island. Peter Brune and Johnny Franklin remained in Victoria. Nine of the original party of 16 had died during the three years they were at Port Phillip. Those that returned to Phillip Island sought better living conditions and organised the Flinders Island community to petition Queen Victoria in 1846 to grant them some land and remove the European superintendent from the island. The colonial office in London closed down the Flinders Island community as a result of their protest and returned many of the Flinders Island Aborigines to the mainland. In 1847... 45 Aborigines were removed from Flinders Island and transferred to Oyster Cove outside Hobart. Oyster Cove had been abandoned as a convict settlement because of the harsh and damp conditions there. By 1856, 29 of the Tasmanian Aborigines who had been transferred to Oyster Cove had died mainly as a result of respiratory diseases. By 1868, only three remained at Oyster Cove. Trugalini was the last survivor of the Oyster Cove community. Aborigines who remained on the islands in Bass Strait, living in sealers' camps, invited 
her to live with them in 1872. She refused, preferring to live near her traditional lands. She died in 1876, aged 64. Two years later, her body was dug up by the Royal Society of Tasmania and put on public display for almost a century in the Tasmanian Museum. Despite protests from the Tasmanian Museum, the bo- her bones were finally cremated on the 1st of May 1976. Lest we forget, the interpretation of history changes with each generation. The difficulty about interrupting interpreting Australians' early colonial history is that only the colonisers left written records about what occurred. These records were incomplete. In many cases, you have to read between the lines to find out what really happened. The story of Tanaminiwai, Morbohina, Putirana, Truganini and Planabina is a great Australian story that all Australians should be familiar with. It is a love story, a story of survival against all the odds, a story of armed resistance, rebellion, compassion, brutality and most important of all, hope. Join us midday on Sunday the 20th of January for our yearly Tanaminawe and Morbohina commemoration at the Tanaminawe and Morbohina Monument at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne. It took us 15 years of struggle to have this monument established. It is the first and only significant monument to the frontier walls in any capital city, in any major city in this country. Join us midday. Uh, 20th of January corner Victorian Franklin Street after a one hour ceremony will march to their last resting site at the Queen Victoria Markets bring your children, bring your friends this is uh, an event which will be broadcast live on community radio 3cr.org.au listen to the Anarchist World this week next week on your local community radio station if you want access to that uh, account or a more detailed account uh, you can go to tunnamall.org. That's T-U-N-N-E-R mall.org. Join us on the 20th of January midday at 3CR. Listen to us next week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. This is the first program for 2019. We have some very interesting things lined up. But as I said last week at the end of 2018, without your assistance, without your participation, nothing will happen. So we encourage you, especially on the 20th of January, to come along on what we believe should be National Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day, the 20th of January, the day the British colonisers hung two Indigenous Freedom Fighters, Tanaminawe and Mulbohina, for having the audacity to publicly resist. We don't forget the soldiers who died overseas. Why, shouldn't, why should we forget the people who died here protecting their lands, their families, their culture? Their language. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national, and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, large